And good morning, church. Uh, a little rough in voice this morning, so I'll apologize for that in advance. Let me take you on a, on a trip back through the decades. I'm going to take you to the year 1966 to the back lot of Desilu Studios. Not one of the larger studio enterprises, but it was the fusion of Lucille Ball and Desi Arnaz who came together and formed a little production company. It was this little production company that took a risk on a, a very marginal intellectual property that was being developed by a screenwriter primarily known for writing espionage and westerns. He pitched it to Desilu as a wagon train to the stars. And they did a pilot, and it flopped. And that would have been the end of it, except Desilu Studios had enough faith that they commissioned a second pilot. And out of that was birthed an enterprise that has, well, over the past 50 years, grown to encompass 13 major motion pictures, 44 seasons of episodic television, and it's a cash cow worth something in excess of $6 billion. The wagon train to the stars. That's not the title they ran with in the end, though they convinced him to call it Star Trek. And it was good. It was good. The original series, 1966 to 69. And yet, as good as it was, that story pales in comparison to this one. This one that we've called the original Star Trek. The account of the birth of Jesus, as many of you will know, is found in two different places in the Bible. It's in the Gospel of Matthew, and it's in the Gospel of Luke. Now, you could say maybe in the Gospel of John, it's kind of a cosmic, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. But, but the actual details of the birth are found only in those two places. And Luke's account is hands down most people's favorite. It's filled with, filled with singing angels and, and lowly shepherds and a bright night sky. We have a harder time with Matthew's version, the one that, the one that we just read. Uh, there's a darkness to it and to the, to the things that follow. There's a grittiness to it. Not only do we have a hard time with Matthew, we have a hard time when we try and reconcile the two, Luke and Matthew, and, and wedge them together. Luke seems to have this kind of rustic, worshipful scene. Jesus born, laid in a manger. And then fast forwards ahead to the, to the naming, the presentation of Jesus in the temple. And then they return to Nazareth. Now think about Herod. Nothing about the refugee flight of Jesus and his family. Nothing about the slaughter of the innocent. Nothing about these disturbing dreams. But we try and blend them together just the same. And I've seen, I've participated over the years, so have you, in lots and lots of children's pageants that do this. We weave it all together. And according to my digest version, the story of Jesus, Christmas pageant form, goes something like this. In those days... A decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be enrolled. And so all went out, each to their own spot on the stage, previously marked. And Joseph also came with Mary, his betrothed, who was great with pillow. <laughs> and while they were there, the time came for her to be delivered. And she gave birth to a cabbage patch doll, wrapped him in an old flannel blanket, and laid him in a plywood cradle because there was no place for them behind all the rest of the scenery. In that region, 
there were a lot of little shepherds out in the field wearing towels and bathrobes, pretty tight. And the church spotlight shone on them, and they reacted some late, but they reacted with facial expressions of practiced fear. (laughs) And then came, at least in the more upscale pageants, the wise persons. These are modern times, you know, wise persons. Dressed in borrowed, regal-looking costumes that they grabbed from the academics or, or maybe from the choir room, bearing with them two jars and a box. And then a voice of the angel came bellowing out from inside of the baptistry, using words that nobody was quite sure what they meant, excelsis Deo. And then all the people joined in the singing, Joy to the World. The program ended. Parents all took their borrowed animals home. And there in the Sunday school office, there was peace among all because (laughs) no one was bitten. And all the lights stayed on. And everyone returned to their homes, promising to call their neighbors and invite them to the performance next year. That's what happens when we get the two accounts and we try and squeeze them tight together, sandwich-like. Out pops this, this beautiful pageant full of sweetness and light. And because we've been steeped in that, we're pretty sure that if Christmas happened all over again tomorrow night, you and I would have no trouble recognizing it. We'd just look for a tin-plated star perched up on a rooftop somewhere, listen for the sounds of cattle lowing. You know that carol, cattle are lowing. Listen for the little Lord Jesus who's awake but not crying. No crying he makes. Matthew's account is strikingly different. Of course, I mean, it, it doesn't take place at the side of a manger. It doesn't even take place at the same time as the shepherds. This is probably some time after. And even if they had arrived at the same time, it would not have been the idyllic little picture that we often carry with us. The manger was not a wooden structure cheerfully constructed by, by volunteer carpenters. Manger was probably located, and we talked about this last week, in a roughly hewn cave. These things were carved into the notches in the side of the hills outside of Bethlehem, a place where animals would stay at night to wait out the storms. Curiously, the Bible, the Bible never says anything about a stable. Matthew tells us, in fact, that by the time he gets to his account, that Joseph and Mary were staying in a house in Bethlehem. We don't know whose health, house, but the wise men came, and they came, and this account of shepherds and angels, all of that had happened sometime previously. We don't know how many there were. And to make matters worse, they're not kings. Even though we love the song, we three kings of Orient are, they are astrologers. They're sky watchers. They're primitive scientists who studied dreams and watched the stars. And just to really foul up your calendar, we believe, in fact, we're pretty sure that those magi probably came to Jesus' bedside in the year 6 BC. What? Yeah. To the best of our records, Jesus was born in the year 6 BC. Now, how did that happen? It happened because sometime around the 6th century, a monk named Dionysius was trying to correlate 
Jesus' birth with, with the Roman calendar, and he made some mistakes. Whatever it is. We know that these magi, these, these stargazers, they were drawn by some kind of, of natural phenomenon. People have speculated, was it a, was it a comet? Was it a supernova? Maybe the most likely candidate, some have said, is was a conjunction. Three planets lined up in beautiful symmetry, Jupiter, Saturn, and Mars. The great astronomer, Kepler, saw exactly that conjunction in the year 1604. And he was a mathematician, so he did the math. When was the last time this happened? 805 years ago. Surprise, surprise. The year 6 BC. Whatever it is, some rare event sent those eastern seekers seeking. Put them on their own Star Trek. Something was afoot in the universe. And so they set out. And because the conjunction of those planets occurred in the sky in the midst of the constellation Pisces, Pisces was the symbol of the Jewish people. They headed for the Jewish homeland. So they set out for Palestine, looking for this coming king. And by the time they arrived in Jerusalem, they must have caused quite a stir. This, this caravan of, of strange eastern foreigners. You know, Jerusalem is kind of a, it's a downtrodden place, depressed, living under the foot of Roman rule. Taxes were high and, and hopes were low, and, but people were looking for anything to distract, distract them from just the gritty reality of life. And here came these strangers, flashy clothes, large caravan, treasures coming with them, pagan mystics. I mean, these guys, are, they're pagan from, from head to toe, talking about a star and about a king. And all of this commotion, it got Herod's attention. Let me just say a few things about Herod. You've met him before. Let's, let's meet him and really meet the man. Sometimes it said Jesus was like a king without a country. Certainly Herod felt like he was a king without a country. He never felt secure in his power. He was a shrewd leader. He was a savvy politician. He was a great builder. Rome gave him the position because they wanted nothing to do with this backwater part in the world. So they just sort of farmed it up. But Herod did his best with it. He was a great builder. Among the things that he built was the temple, which had been destroyed completely decades before. He built it to to newer, higher, better standards, and yet the people still despised him. Why? He was ruthless. He had no friends among common people. He was fearful. He was obsessive. He was jealous. How jealous? In a murderous rage, he executed his favorite wife, Mary Amney, not just her, but also her mother, not just her mother, but also her grandfather, and not just them. He went on to murder three of his own sons. I mean, so ruthless was he that, that Caesar Augustus once said that it was safer to be Herod's pig than Herod's son. That's Herod. When he was about to die, he ordered that all the leading Jewish citizens of Jericho should be rounded up and imprisoned 
so that when he died, they could be slaughtered and there would be the sound of weeping in the streets. That's Herod. Unfortunately, they were set free. That, that didn't happen. But This is the Herod who we read about in verse 7. This is the Herod who secretly, Matthew 2, verse 7, secretly called for the wise men and learned from them the exact time when the star first appeared. It was this ruthless, paranoid king who feigned a kind of devotion. Go, go search diligently for the child. When you found him, bring me word. I, I want to go and bring him my devotion as well. Sure you do, Herod. Yeah. Knowing all this about Herod, you can imagine then what might have happened when the wise men and their caravan finally arrive at the house, Mary, Joseph, Jesus. You can almost picture Mary and Joseph's reaction. You stopped where? You talked to who? You promised what? It's not that the baby Jesus is a pretender to the throne. It's that, it's that Herod and, and every Herod that the world has known believe that if they intimidate enough and terrify enough and kill enough and control enough, the world will be theirs. The tyrants, they're sometimes they're like, they're like small men trying to clamp down the lid on a boiling pot. And the harder you press, the greater the force builds up underneath. The power of the real king, the king of kings, would not be suppressed. Herod was maniacal, twisted up with fear. Now an old man, near his own death, sees great cosmic threat in everything. And so what does he do? He puts all the innocent male children under the age of two to the sword. The slaughter of the innocents. This was the real world into which Jesus was born. This was the real world to which the wise men came. I wonder if we could consider for just a minute these three astrologers coming from Persia, not knowing really anything about this man, Herod, that they would deal with. And yet, here it is, the salvation of the world lay innocently in the arms of his young mother a mere mile or two away, just down the road, with nothing to protect him from the powers of evil at work in the world. And in that moment, his fate, Jesus' fate, depends on these strangers, these magi, and what they would make of a dream. A dream that likely awakened one of them in the middle of the night with an uneasy feeling. Verse 12, have a look. Matthew 2, verse 12, having been warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they left for their own country by another road. Having been warned in a dream is all that Matthew says. But it's a critical moment in the story. It's a critical moment in human history. Just a dream in the middle of the night. But dreams are powerful. Consider God who is able to shape and fashion a universe, who, who out of the great mind of God fashions the world and all of its creatures, including human beings, including the human mind. 
God would have immediate access to our thoughts. It doesn't require the rough forms of communication we use, language, writing. Immediate access. Dreams are powerful. The fate of the whole world turned in those moments on a stranger with a dream who listened for God's leading. And make no mistake about it, had those wise men decided to trudge the few miles back from Bethlehem to Jerusalem and reported to Herod about Jesus, yeah, we know where he is. He's in Bethlehem, rural road number two, in the inn in suite number five. Had they done that, this would have been a short story indeed. Maybe just another dead child, another pretender to the throne. What kind of God is this? Who would risk everything in such a vulnerable enterprise as a human child? The light of the world, the Gospel of John says. Helpless. Right there for the taking. The world has seen its share of tough times. And boy, this year there's been no shortage of them. And there are still children dying in the streets. Dying in war zones. Dying for lack of concern. Dying from those who would make their money off the buying and selling of children like commodities or or fueling their drug habits, or, or tapping into the brokenness of families, children dying from neglect, from rejection, from nearly everything, and in many places, still at the hands of Herod, or Herod-like tyrants. But it's been that way before, and everything was changed in a dream, powerful thing, a dream. It can shake us awake. It can get our attention. Watch out. Listen up. And it's those who, it's those whoever whoever imperfectly are able to tune into what God may be saying that become his instruments. So the wise men listened. I mean, here they were. They came. Pagans, again, outlandish methods, partial knowledge. But they were right. They were right in what they sought. They were right in what they found. They were right in what they discerned as God's voice speaking in a dream. They were right in the safety and protection they afforded the infant Jesus by diverting Herod's glare away from them. They were right. And Herod, for all of his wealth and power, was wrong. It always looks like evil is going to win the day, like it will prevail. Like it has all the cards, and goodness just looks tiny and outnumbered. Evil never has the last word. In the still of the night, in a seeking heart, in a gentle prayer, in an anxious cry of faith, there is power at work that all the tyrants in the world will never overcome. One simple holy dream is enough to foil an evil tyrant and save the day. And some 30 years later, one young rabbi whose life had been spared on that night would climb the summit of a hill 
would allow himself to be pinned to a cross and in so doing would turn the tide of history more than any cruel tyrant with all of their bloodbaths, more than all the economic powers and treasure chests of the world has amassed, this little babe in his mother's arms would prevail. And so the wise men returned home, probably a little wiser, They had walked right into the living room of evil and sat down to deal with the devil. And in the end, when a decision had to be made and the fate of the world hung in the balance, they listened to that small voice inside God's voice and they knew the truth. There are so many voices clamoring for our attention. But there's one we should never miss. I think God has implanted a little bit of wisdom in each of our hearts. Wisdom enough to see evil and run away. Wisdom enough to find the one that we have always in our deepest and truest hearts been seeking with all our might. Let's seek him now. Let's pray together. God, in our hearts, in our minds, in our memories, in our imagination, in our dreams, in our hopes, we seek you. And God, in worship, we rejoice in saying we have found you. Once again this year, we have found ourselves in Bethlehem. As those first seekers did long ago, we have made our way there. We've listened to the yearning of our own hearts. We've listened for your still small voice speaking within. We've listened and we've heard. And now God, armed with the assurance that Jesus is the sign and seal of the gift of salvation, armed with the hope that evil will never be triumphant over goodness and holiness and righteousness and truth. Armed with that hope, we step into a new year. We pray, God, that that we can take with us the gifts of conviction and courage and compassion and hope. The world still needs that Bethlehem child. God, would you be born in a new way in our lives, in our church, in our cities, in our world. Be born in us today, we pray. In Christ's name, amen.